Hey, Mike. Hi, Caleb. How are you? I'm doing well. What are you drinking tonight? Tonight, I am drinking a Persephone. It's actually quite delicious. We've got some apple brandy, some sweet vermouth, some slow gin, and some lemon juice, I believe. Figured uh, we're talking about traffic, and might as well drink a drink named after the Greek goddess of the underworld, because traffic is hell. Oh, nice. You've finally done it. You've uh, created a well-crafted... I had to work for that one. Yeah, yeah. How about you? What are you drinking? I made my own concoction tonight. It is a essentially a margarita without any of the fruit. <laughs> so it is tequila, contro, and instead of instead of fruit, I put in some uh, Benedictine. So interesting. Is it is it worth naming? I would leave it up to the listeners to come up with a name for this drink. I I don't have a good name for it, but I actually quite like it. But I didn't salt it or anything. So it, it's just a different tequila drink. It's kind of it's kind of good. Interesting. Cool. So uh, you want to follow up and talk some more about autopilot and the implications of self-driving vehicles? Yeah, I think so. I mean, last episode, we spoke a bunch about the hardware and where Tesla is currently at with their autopilot and self-driving efforts. Touched on Google a little bit. And uh, yeah, I think this is just sort of going to become a little bit of a series on uh, (laughs) autonomous vehicles. I mean, there's so much to dig into and implications. So yeah, I thought tonight we could spend some time uh, digging into some of the topic areas around it and um, and see see where we go. But I think there'll certainly be at least another episode uh, worth of content uh, coming down <laughs> the line. So buckle up and uh, hopefully folks are interested in autopilot related stuff since that's what we're going to be on for a little bit. We are on autopilot. No, we're not. We're not on autopilot. <laughs> this is this is deep analysis. So I guess one of the one of the big areas, and we we touched on it a bit, was um, was health. But one of the other big areas is environment and what impact, if any, self driving cars will have on our environment yeah. and the environment. And uh, yeah, I think that's sort of an interesting split, actually. That um, the environment is both the sort of natural environment, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and then also our physical environment and what sort of ways that self-driving cars may change the way we build the cities we live in and the towns we live in and how we get between those. So yeah, I think maybe that's a good place to to start. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, to start off, I, I think the talking about self-driving, it's it's always in, in most of the discussions that I've heard, it's always been assumed that self-driving and electric cars go hand in hand, but there's not necessarily any reason why that has to be the case. And you can imagine that General Motors or one of these other companies like Ford or Chrysler, or these big companies that have a lot of money invested in internal combustion engines might want to apply that technology to gasoline powered engines. And I mean, for me, that seems like uh, living in America, that seems like some sort of environmental doomsday scenario right? (laughs) where now all of a sudden, like you don't have to worry at all about the amount of gas that you're burning. Yeah. And and like, um, that's totally true. I mean, I think you're right. A lot of people conflate the two as necessarily linked and they're certainly not. Both the Google car effort is running a Lexus that is a hybrid, but is still an internal combustion engine that they retrofitted. And then Cruise Automation, which is the company that was doing LiDAR self-driving that you could do as an aftermarket on Audi A4s, which was recently acquired by GM for a reported $1 billion, was intended for, you know, traditional 
off the off the rack sort of um, internal combustion engine vehicles. So certainly Tesla has talked about how their electric vehicles and their electric steering and brakes and acceleration lead to more precise vehicles. But you know, there's evidence proof that it's not required. And so it's certainly very possible that these traditional automakers that perhaps introducing the self driving technology will actually be a faster adoption curve than electric vehicles, especially since they're so far behind on it. And there are other structural reasons, which we've talked about in the past a bit around charging that limit that. So yeah, I mean, that is definitely a a real possibility that there are more gas burning self-driving vehicles than there are electric ones. Yeah. And it's an interesting government intervention point too, because uh, in the US at least, um, you can tell just by the difference in in gasoline prices between the US and most of the rest of the world, gasoline is heavily subsidized or very, very lightly taxed, I guess, as it were. It's, it's, I believe, externalities. Is that the the business word for it? That is the economics term for it. Yeah, the externalities are really not factored into the price of gasoline in the US, which makes it artificially cheap and has contributed to how the basically how we've built out most of our country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, America is the driving country. The idea of getting your license at 16 and driving and this idea of freedom being linked so much to driving being such a large country where we have sort of this this idea that you should be able to travel wherever you want and being a, a country built on automobiles so early on in our history relative to the automotive industry. That certainly it is there's there's just a lot of built up both tax and um, structural regulation that supports cars and um, low gasoline prices. Our friends over in in Europe and in other countries certainly pay a much higher tax for fuel and also on vehicles. I mean, uh, getting a getting a car into um, Singapore, there's you know duties of upwards of a hundred percent. And London not allowing many vehicles in unless you pay a very high tax to be in the city center. You know, I can't imagine what would happen if um, San Francisco or New York were to say we're not going to let in any vehicles unless they're electric vehicles um, or self-driving only. And so, yeah, I think we certainly have both of those as negatives for the United States from a policy point of view that make it a lot more difficult for us to imagine a self-driving world with only electric vehicles. Um, The automakers certainly are not in a place today to fight both of those fronts, uh, marketing-wise, technology-wise, cost-wise, at the same time. So as much as Tesla wants that to be the future, I think it's a very real possibility that that isn't that doesn't end, end up being the case. And, um, you know, it's still, it's still for us to explore, I think, the true environmental impact of electric vehicles. Certainly when the EPA measures the sort of effective range for uh, Teslas around 90 miles per gallon, that's still using sort of the baseline of what it would be as if it was a gasoline vehicle. But to your point about externalities, I'm not sure they're factoring in the mining uh, damage to the to the earth or um, the recyclability issues. And so I still I still believe that a, a battery powered world will be better, uh, primarily because the fundamental fuel source can eventually be renewable from wind and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the solar. key word there is, is probably eventually. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that at least is the there is no potentiality for internal combustion engines to be renewable. Right. Where at least with electric vehicles they are. And also where we get electricity 
uh, electricity can travel a lot further, and and so we can uh, have a higher density of renewables in certain parts of the country and parts of the world. Where if you're shipping fossil fuels around every single time you're using that fossil fuel, you're using fossil fuel. So you know the ability for the mix to improve seems a lot better. But I guess we're going a little bit astray from the self-driving cars. <laughs> Well, no, it's all related. And and to to talk about the built environment a little bit, it's it's kind of interesting that uh, from what I've been reading, urban planners and uh, people who are in charge of building out our our built environment tend to work on pretty long time horizons, much longer. Yeah, apparently like twenty years or something. Yeah, which makes sense, right? You build roads, or or especially like once you start dividing up land, and when you start getting into like zoning and land use. Once once you like divide up the land and it becomes private property, it's almost impossible to to redo that. So that's that's even an even longer time horizon. But from what I've been reading, there's very little consensus among them about how to handle the potential impact of self-driving cars. Because at the moment, they are still not something that exists. They're something that's coming, but how far they're going to go and how quickly that's going to happen is all up in the air. And for people making decisions for like 20 or 30 years of uh, in the future, it's pretty much impossible for them right now. Yeah. I mean, if you, and just thinking about that statement of if you're creating a city plan for now, 20 years out, like what, what are the big issues? You're looking out to 2036. And like, it seems very likely, even with the way that Elon Musk and others are talking about, you know, 2020, 2025 being very ready technology wise to support self-driving cars. So, so there's like a 15 plus year delta in that time horizon. And so I guess what would be interesting to chat about a bit is sort of what are the things that we would expect would need to change and what would be good investments for these cities to be making? Because San Francisco has massive traffic problems right now. Los Angeles has massive traffic problems. New York, massive congestion problems. Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., all these major U.S. cities are also some of the most traffic cities. So it doesn't doesn't follow that the most populous and most rich cities also then have the best city planning to accommodate all those cars and people. It actually is negatively correlated, it seems, that some of the most affluent cities have the worst traffic. And so we clearly are not even doing a good job of accommodating our current level of, of traffic and, and driving. And all estimates seem to indicate that self-driving vehicles, by reducing the cost per mile, will drastically increase usage. I mean, it's a sort of economics 101 when the cost of something goes down, demand for it increases, which means more time people being on the road and driving. And one of the things that seems so interesting, I guess, is, you know, there's that stat that gets thrown around a lot with self-driving proponents around 5% of a vehicle's life is spent driving and 95% of it is spent sitting around. And so we have this massive under underutilized asset. But every car that's causing traffic, there's a person in there and it's driving. <laughs> so, you know, the idea that more people will want to be traveling doesn't necessarily mean there'll be less congestion. There'll actually be more miles driven with people you know, in cars, uh, going places. So yeah, what are some of the things that came to mind for you when you were thinking about like what what should be on the top of these guys' minds? What should they be planning for in the context of self-driving vehicles? Uh, it's difficult to say because I mean, I am, I guess, in, in putting everything out there, I guess, full disclosure, transparency, I tend to be more Jane Jacobs than Robert Moses. So I'm more of a 
dense urban walking person and not as much of a highway driving mid-century America utopia sort of sort of I'm even my description I guess is 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 betraying my my philosophy on this your loyalties um but, yeah. but does that mean you just don't like that or you mean you don't think that is actually a better state for humans to be that you think it's better for people to be in dense cities or yes or yeah <laughs> I think okay. both I think that it is historically better for people to be out of vehicles that the health impact of sitting in a car for a long commute is constantly and consistently like underrated by people and yeah they so there's been studies that show that the longer your commute the higher your levels of obesity of cholesterol of pain fatigue anxiety uh, all of these things that that contribute to your physical health and your mental health all diminish the more you're driving the longer you're sitting in a vehicle whether it's in a long commute or in a stressful like high traffic congested commute and then that is not even to say that in the other direction where you're walking you're actually like interacting with your environment you're having physical activity and you're less isolated from the world around you. Mm -hmm. This whole phenomenon of road rage is is a fascinating area that that has, right. has come into existence in the sort of latter, I guess, the latter parts of the 20th century. And it's just fascinating that this this idea of you in control of this like essentially like multi-ton suit of armor where you feel invincible and you want to get to where you're going as fast as possible, and you're a driver, everyone else is traffic. And just recently, there was a video of some guy who parked in a bike lane and the bike went by and smacked his car. And then he like ran and cut off the bike in San Francisco. And there's a video on YouTube about them screaming at each other. Uh, and it's just it's just fascinating that that this device has drives people to these to these extremes. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Unintended. <laughs> yes. So I agree with you that those are certainly bad, but. Don't I guess it seems likely that many of those concerns, as we talked about in the, the episode where we talked about our test drive, that a lot of those are alleviated when you as the human are not the one driving. And so I have this dual sense that both dense urban environments will also benefit from self-driving, but not nearly as much as the suburban area well, where to be clear though the, the the road rage would but the health impacts of sitting in a car seat will still be with you yeah i guess that's true i mean i guess if you the, the sedentariness and potentially sitting in a car for so much longer if you do decide to travel from longer distances i think the the stat that i, I read recently was that like 10 million americans travel more than an hour each way to work God, like 600,000 endure what they call mega commutes, which is at least 90 minutes and 50 miles each way. This is according to the Census Bureau. That's insane. I mean, I used to commute from San Francisco to Palo Alto and drive and it was maybe an hour and 10 minutes each way when it when it was sort of getting busier. And there would be some nights when I would be, you know, ready to just start pounding on the wheel <laughs> and you just feel this claustrophobia and trapped. And you just can't go anywhere. And it, it is it is taxing. So I certainly can empathize a bit with that. And now I'm very fortunate that I get to walk to work. I moved uh, closer to work so that I could um, not have to drive anymore. So, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. I know you take the train to get to work and walk around. So, you know, we're certainly not big advocates for owning a car just to, you know, get around. If, if, if you have the opportunity, certainly walking to work is 
great and only a very small percentage of people get to do it. But in some cities, I guess it is a higher percentage like New York. Yeah, apparently, one I, I was reading a, a study recently that showed that New York, obviously the highest number of people who commute by, by non-car means. Uh, right. But San Francisco, I believe, was number two at something like 60% or 50 or 60% hmm. of people commuting by non-car means. But if you just go 40 miles south of San Francisco to San Jose, it was down to below 10% of people commuting yeah. by non-car means. And it's... it's Yeah, I mean, San, San Jose, it's just street after street after street and all, like, you know sidewalks that disappear and huge blocks with no intriguing coffee shops or street level stuff. And so I guess maybe that's sort of the first first sort of concrete idea for these city planners is just keep building the cities better for pedestrians and cyclists, that making a city better for people on, on foot will ultimately be better for the vehicles as well, because it offloads a lot of traffic onto streets and provides people the opportunity to not have to drive so that when more people are driving because the trips are so cheap, there'll be a lot shorter little distance trips instead of these massive commutes into the city and requiring everyone be in a car. You know, it reminds me, I used to live in Miami, Florida, and I didn't have a car down there either. Uh, Sort of a recurring theme for me. this is pre-Uber. This was pre-Uber, and I had a little scooter, a little foot scooter, uh, the Zooter, um, which I now see a lot around in San Francisco. But, um, you know, I would I would walk to work, and it was a 20-minute walk in the heat, and, you know, it was very odd to see anyone else on the sidewalk and having cars buzz by you three or four inches away from you on these very tiny little sidewalks on three, you know, undivided uh, three-lane streets was extremely uh, nerve-wracking as well. And, you know, a lot of people who die because of car accidents are pedestrians. So yeah, it's fascinating to see how the, I guess, circling back around to the idea of what urban planners can do, this idea of building for cars or building at a car scale and, and creating a built environment that's meant to be experienced at a minimum of 30 miles an hour versus building something at human scale where it's, you know, you're walking at maybe three miles an hour. It's it's fascinating that the implications of that, like when you mentioned living in Miami, there was a study recently that showed that they created something called a pedestrian danger index. And they tried <laughs> to rate the worst cities to live in if you're a pedestrian, if you're if you're stuck walking around on foot, which I mean, in places like San Francisco and New York, it's, it's more of a lifestyle choice. In, in mm-hmm. a lot of the country, it's actually more of a class issue where the, the when you have the means, you can afford your own private transportation. And like it's the poor people who are getting run down on these busy roads. But yeah, the top four cities in their pedestrian danger index were all in Florida. I think it was like Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, and Miami was number four. Yeah. And these are all cities that are built uh, with the car in mind. They were built, they were really built out in the latter half of the 20th century with wide roads and small sidewalks or no sidewalks, like you say. And, you know, even you can even tell when you come to intersections if it's a 90 degree intersection or if there's this like the sidewalk cuts out and there's this like gentle curve so that you don't even have to slow down much in your vehicle as you're, as you're whipping around the turn. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, I think the point about these being later developed cities is really interesting because, to your point, there was this this movement in the United States that cities built sort of after the third after the forties, fifties, when the car started to exist, and we started to realize that we wanted to have interstate highways. That cities would actually be predestined and gridded, but with very larger grids because cars would be there. 
and they sort of forgot about pedestrians. And um, I think you, you certainly see the effects of that when you compare a city like Los Angeles and San Francisco and sort of their ability to absorb so many more people and have, you know, San Francisco still has pretty bad traffic, but it still isn't anything like Los Angeles. And the problem is that where people want to live and getting into the city, it's way harder for people to deal with the fact that there's only so many roads into the city and so many, you know, so much space when there's peak traffic. But when the city is accommodating pedestrians, the number of sort of routes you can take as a pedestrian and the density you can absorb on a, on a sidewalk for people. I mean, it's just immensely different, right? Because the square footage of a car per person is, you know, 10, 15 times what it is if you're just a pedestrian walking. Yeah. So, you, you know, if you try and imagine a New York street, if every person on the sidewalk was in a vehicle, it, it would take, you know, hundreds and hundreds of blocks to accommodate even two or three blocks of the density of people. Then you have to put the vehicles somewhere once you get out of them too. Yeah, I mean, that's the other probably big, big insight for these planners is stop building as much parking in downtown city areas. I mean, as much as people would complain about it, it does help you decide not to drive into a city. You know, when you go, at least here, if you want to go down to San Jose, you know you're going to be able to find a parking spot. It's sort of a joke in San Francisco that uh, you're never going to be able to find a parking spot. And if you do, you're going to have to pay 30 or $40 um, for it. And so a lot more people take carpool or take the train in or decide to live there and don't have a car because parking is so expensive. And you figure it out. And these emergent systems like Uber came around starting in San Francisco because A, there was very low number of taxi cabs, but also because so few people relative to their income had cars where almost everyone in San Jose who, you know, makes a minimum wage can still afford a car and have a car. So in some sort of odd way, making it more difficult for cars to exist well in your city may be one of the best things you can do for self-driving cars. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, there's this law that's or I don't know if it's a law, but there's a, a rule that's been proven. I think it's called induced demand. Is that right? Induced demand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, where if you add a lane to a road, thinking that you're going to relieve traffic, you're actually just going to increase traffic or congestion because then more people are going to drive. Yeah, it's the efficiency principle. You know, when any, any, any time you improve efficiency of something, it very rarely do you actually see any savings. You just see more people utilize it. Like when electricity prices fall, people don't just save money and use less electricity, they find new uses for electricity <laughs> or new uses for water. Or, you know, when we figured out that we could have railroads to move people across the country, we also decided to put goods on those railroads. And now we could build cities in new places. So sort of the emergent behaviors that come from reducing the cost of something or increasing the efficiency by adding more throughput, you know, humans are very rational and, and absorb that very quickly. So it's almost impossible to reduce congestion enough to really be cost effective. And that's why so many of these major works projects, by the time they're done, the population has grown because people are expecting that new lane to be there. And so housing prices rise and, and more people are ending up living there. So yeah, it's, it's just an amazingly difficult challenge. And we're feeling that too with Caltrain here, which is our sort of local commuter train. Oh, don't get me um, started. 
I kind of do because you feel this very, very much. I mean, we in the Bay Area, it's been pretty difficult how many more people have been have been moving in here. And one of the challenges is that the 101 and the 280, which are two major arteries between Palo Alto and San Francisco and, and San Jose around along the whole coast, the Bay Coast, it is so congested that people have turned to the train, even though they could technically afford cars because they don't want to drive. And that's led to Caltrain being so oversubscribed that they're trying to add more trains and more, you know, more capacity and they can't keep up with the demand and they can't keep up with the fact that when they add more train, you know, more cars, more people want to take Caltrain. So, yeah, it's really it, it ties into this idea of especially in the United States, and this is going to be pretty U.S. centric, we're, we're allergic to sensible infrastructure spending and planning and trying to get any sort of public transit built in the U.S. is just always uh, an uphill battle. Uh, there are some cities that have been built out with large transportation systems, but most of them, like you mentioned, Caltrain. Caltrain is this commuter line that runs from San Jose up to San Francisco. And it's one of, I think, what, like seven different non-connected transportation systems in the bay area which is a whole other a whole other problem but yeah i mean it's that there's all these different entities that control all these separate systems and they're not working together as a region which causes all sorts of problems but yeah the the caltrain is also a it's a heavy rail so it's shared with actual cargo trains that run through as well so there's they're limited on what they can do and their budget is you know forecast i don't know years out or something and their budget's not increasing and they can't get enough rolling stock to get all these people on board and it just means that in rush hour time you you just need to plan on standing most of the time depending on which station you get on uh, you're going to stand for your commute your 40 minute commute which is really unpleasant yeah and i i think that um one of the things that's come up a lot with some of the proponents of self-driving cars is, well, cities won't need to invest in infrastructure like public transit. And, you know, one of the things that we saw, at least in the United States in the 40s, was this feeling that, well, everyone's going to buy a car. And so we can start removing a lot of public transit. In L.A., they started pulling away the, the uh, streetcars. You know, the United States used to have way more streetcars for public transit through the cities. And those all got ripped out to make room for more cars and sort of this this sort of belief that people would prefer driving in cars. And ultimately, you know, the United States does seem to have a preference on on the whole for self-car ownership. But in cities like New York City, there are all sorts of people who are taking public transit and making it work. And I don't know about you, but I would much prefer to have the New York subway system in, in San Francisco, <laughs> you know, barring the, the, the earthquake problem. I would even settle for the Boston subway system in San Francisco. Sure. So I feel like that's one of the other things that should sort of be considered by these planners as they they think about the advent of these self-driving vehicles is is to continue to invest in public transit because it isn't going to be an overnight thing it it won't be that one quarter we have no self-driving cars and the next quarter it's at 50% adoption and so as much as we want it to be possible and there will be some people who have access to self-driving vehicles and there'll be small pockets of of the world that will have self-driving vehicles and we'll talk about that a bit in uh, soon it still seems very clear to me that continuing to invest in core infrastructure making the the lanes better making the 
the signage clearer, just doing just the fundamental block and tackling of, you know, making roads better for humans, as well as making better infrastructure investments for public transit and bicycles and every other mode of transit is worthwhile because cars don't seem to need much help. There's plenty of demand for people to want to drive. I think cities should still be investing more energy in, in building demand and providing the supply for for bicycles and people people in uh, just walking around and using public transit. Yeah, it's just unfortunately in the U.S. that usually takes the uh, the form of kind of a eat your vegetables or take your medicine sort of uh, sort of approach where the dominant philosophy is that I want a car so I can go wherever I want when I want. Yeah, and I guess one of the um, one of the other sort of facets to this is travel in general and sort of this idea of okay, well, if I have a self-driving car, not only is it feasible for me to go from San Jose to San Francisco, which is a 40-mile drive, maybe I'll go from Santa Cruz to San Francisco or Carmel to to San Francisco and, you know, 100-mile-plus distances. And one of the interesting ideas is what do you think that will change the way people think about flights you know southwest was built on this idea of short-range flights where it didn't really make sense to want to drive for a for a meeting do you think self-driving cars are going to have an impact on on that yeah i mean it's certainly if you start thinking about things that you can do in the the, in this transition period as we move to self-driving vehicles you could imagine like we have carpool lanes right now where we try and Mm -hmm. aggregate aggregate (laughs) <laughs> we try and aggregate <laughs> drivers or, or essentially like car, who would be drivers into like single vehicles. And you could imagine dedicated lanes for autonomous vehicles. And those dedicated lanes could have higher speed limits because human reaction time is not a factor anymore. And they're driving autonomously. And if you're, I, I guess in Germany, you have autobahns where there's no yeah, uh, speed limit. But in the U.S., there, other than parts of Montana, I think every highway has speed limits of seventy-five or lower. And you could imagine if you start creeping up over a hundred or more miles an hour, then that becomes more of a viable option to get through these short hops. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of going from San Francisco to L.A., which is a very, very popular short haul airplane route and lots and lots of people do that you know it's a little bit timely but the fact that the TSA lines are now an hour plus and the sort of delays and time you need to be at the airport and time to get to the airport you could very feasibly see that traveling at 120 to 150 miles an hour could potentially lead to driving being a total time uh, shorter trip than flying as well as just being a lot less stressful because you get in your vehicle and then you end up exactly where you want to be so i mean i think that's probably a little bit further out but what's interesting is that the people who would be able to afford self-driving vehicles early on and are going to be wanting to try this are the exact same sort of people who also over index on spending for airlines you know, flying is still relegated to, at least globally, relatively rich people. And so being able to afford a a vehicle that has all this technology in it will certainly be more correlated with being wealthy than being being less wealthy. So I think it's certainly very possible that it will have some substitution effect for flights as well. Certainly not New York to uh, San Francisco, but (laughs) these short haul flights, especially in, in lots of states where it's extremely 
you know, Texas, you could imagine that, um, you know, Texas cities are potentially hundreds of miles apart. Uh, and, and a lot of people need to get between those. So it'll certainly be a lot uh, simpler to just hop in your car and let it drive you there than um, going through the hassle of going on an airplane. So I certainly welcome that for sure. Yeah. And, and this is very US centric. But if you imagine more developing countries, I guess you, you run into this interesting problem of the self-driving vehicles are sort of coming in at the high end right now. But if they start becoming available at a lower end, then when you talk about countries that are still building out infrastructure, then they don't even have this retrofitting problem where they can actually just build infrastructure for self-driving vehicles right from the get-go. Yeah, and I guess that sort of brings up a, a broader point of, you know, the current model, at least the Tesla model, is ownership. And so you buy the car, you lease the car, but ultimately it's single purpose. It's for you, it's for you and your family. And um, very much a part of your identity in the US. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's something you own. And uh, and so you're paying for the entire cost of that vehicle. And so you compare that cost to comparable cars. But if you think about it much more as an asset that could be shared, and you think more about the cost per mile driven, than the uh, absolute cash outlay, then if you think about self driving cars, they could potentially be, and, and a lot of folks have talked about it, it's not particularly a new insight, but this idea that self-driving cars will be the way that sharing vehicles, the sharing economy concept, will really be able to come into its own. And to your point about emerging countries, the idea that a corporation could choose to purchase some vehicles and then provide it as a service on a sort of per-use basis, the same way that Uber and Lyft do it, but the most expensive part of Uber and Lyft is the driver. And so when that is removed, cost per mile goes down and the cost per mile of an electric vehicle is, is much, much lower than a gasoline vehicle. And so, you know, for pennies per mile, you could imagine a taxi service that is far safer, far more efficient. And what that will do for personal transportation that's the piece I think self-driving vehicles really get into and hasn't fully been explored yet because it's just too hard to even imagine how epic that's going to be. Yeah. And then once you start getting into private services, doing car sharing like that, you then also start thinking about what if it's a public service? And I guess the, there's the obvious transition period of maybe buses become self-driving or subways become self-driving, but you could even imagine much like there's municipal broadband taking over for gouging ISPs, right? <laughs> you could imagine a municipal car share network where maybe your town just buys a bunch of Tesla vehicles or whatever, and they're just always just moving around like the circulatory system of the town. And you just open up your app and boom, a car picks you up. Yeah, I mean, bringing it back to some of the things Tesla's already hinted at, at uh, a recent... Um earnings call, one of the analysts was asking Elon what he thought of self-driving cars in the context of things like Uber and Lyft. And um, he basically tried to dodge the question, but in his typical fashion, he his statement was, there's a right time to make announcements, and this is not that time. <laughs> and then he added that their strategy for that sort of a service wasn't fully baked, which certainly implies that there is something baking. So, you know, inadvertently sort of talking about that. And then at a, another recent event, he was asked about public transit and what he thought Tesla could do to help with public transit. Would they be making a bus? 
And he said, I don't really think a bus is the right approach, but he said, I do think we have some really interesting ideas to contribute around public transportation. And then someone asked him, are you talking about the Hyperloop? And he said, no, 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 not the Hyperloop, something, something different. And he said it would also solve the last mile problem of public transit, where public transit, you need to go to a predefined bus stop or train stop or subway stop, and then it drops you off at one, and then you finally go to your final destination. So even though Tesla only currently has autopilot, which is basically for the highways, they're certainly thinking about and seem to have some pretty developed thoughts that they haven't yet shared with what this sort of communal service might be that may be private, but also ideas for replacing public transit in the context of buses. Because if you think about a bus, like as, as a passenger, you're not, you're not driving the bus. You don't control where it goes really. And so it really does seem like a lot of those options could be solved with self-driving vehicles if they're much smaller, they can be much closer to each other, safer. So, you know, that's a whole nother piece to this, this context is to what extent do buses get uh, sort of disrupted by this lower end service of a much cheaper personal transportation service where even if it costs a million dollars for one of these vehicles at the outset, which I don't think it will be anywhere close to that high, but the useful life and the number of miles it could travel and the number of trips it could make could certainly be cheaper than a taxi medallion, which costs a million dollars in, in New York City, for instance. Yeah. And it's, I mean, no one loves buses. So that's probably an interesting point, an interesting uh, transition point too, where no one's really going to be fighting for keeping buses around. If there's a better system, that seems like a, a it's ripe for replacement. Yeah, totally. And I don't know of any city that has a profitable bus line. I think they're all money losers and always underfunded. And so if someone were to come with an option that would be a profit center for a city, I think they would quickly turn to it. And and they certainly have been fast to adopt natural gas buses and now electric buses in some places. And so I think that's actually where we will see self-driving vehicles first deployed is in certain cities that have cleared the way with the regulation and, and whatnot, but where it's a very clear delineation of what the vehicle needs to do and a clear path. And that city can be mapped extremely well in advance, similar to what Google's done in Mountain View and, uh, and be this service. I mean, that's what Google is trying to do with that small self-driving car, that sort of very cute looking toy shaped vehicle that doesn't go more than 25 miles an hour you know their stated goal is that that's for cities because in, in most u.s cities the speed limit is 25 miles an hour and so you you never end up going very fast and um you can understand the limits of a city very well and map it extremely well yeah and and i that is actually happening too there's a town in greece that has like a self-driving minibus and i think mm -hmm. self-driving like multi-passenger pods are going on the roads in Singapore somewhere, I believe. Oh yeah, I believe exactly. I yeah, it was Singapore. Um, yeah. But this actually, so this ties into another interesting aspect of self-driving vehicles. And you mentioned buses being first strike area, I guess. Yep. <laughs> initial beachhead. But there are bus drivers. There are people who drive buses. And if they start driving themselves, then we no longer have bus drivers. Now, that's not a huge deal. I mean, there are a lot of bus drivers, but not a tremendous amount in, in the grand scheme of things. But once you start talking about truck drivers and this idea yeah. of people driving freight and packages and all these other things that, that people do, I believe the stat is there's three and a half million professional truck drivers in the U.S. 
and it's the being a truck driver, according to the census, is the top profession in 28 of the 50 U.S. states. I know. I know. When I saw that, I was like, holy, that is an insane amount of drivers. It's crazy. And then there's like another, there's another 5 million people that are adjacently involved in the truck driving industry. And that is another difficult transition area where like what is going to happen as all of these people lose their jobs to automation and it's like it's not just a small number of bus drivers but it is the number one occupation in the majority of u.s states and that seems like that can be extremely destabilizing yeah and and i think the um the other reality is that you know, bus drivers in cities may have um, a bit more protection where the cities are slower moving right. because it's a public entity. But these trucking companies are private for-profit companies. There is currently a shortage of truck drivers in the U.S., and so that's driven up prices but also caused shipping companies to look for alternatives. The salary for the average truck driver is around $40,000, which is, you know, more than the average U.S. salary, even for combined households. And so being a truck driver, as much as it, it doesn't seem like necessarily uh, a very glamorous job, which it, it certainly is not, it's very difficult work, does pay okay. Right. And so the the other, the other big pa- part of that is those are mostly highway miles and... It, it is not a job where there is currently much decision-making being made by the driver. They already have computers in the vehicles telling them when to get off for gas, which gas station to go to because they already know where the cheapest fuel is. It tells them exactly where to go, what to drop off, and in what place. And so they are already getting more and more technology into, into truck driving to make it more efficient because... You know, shipping costs are never an additive part of a product. They're they're almost always purely a cost center. And so if an individual trucking company can offer shipping a ton, tonnages of freight for less, people will respond because it's a commodity service. And so I think all of that plays into the fact that these companies are already investing into self-driving vehicles and folks like Volvo and you know a lot of the the press about self-driving vehicles and autonomous vehicles is focused on the consumer sector but the B2B sector there's already self-driving tractors because on private land the laws already allow it and so many of the combines and tractors uh, by John Deere and others are already self-driving they are autonomous and the farmers aren't spending time in those in those vehicles and so yeah i think truck driving is certainly going to be one of the quickest accelerated fields, probably even, uh, it's hard to guess. I'm not sure if taxi drivers will be first or truck drivers, but certainly both of those have uh, very strong economic tailwinds pushing for that technology, much more so than I think the consumer area, because the consumers are going to be protected so much more by the, the lobbyists and the the local governments um, for safety, where truck drivers and the trucking lobby, it'll be interesting to see how they how they respond to this. Bus drivers and are, are probably unionized, but most truck drivers, I believe, are not. Yeah, they're all, many of them are just contractors, and they don't own their trucks either. The trucks are the property of the trucking lines, and so for them to try to replace the fleet is just a choice of, of investing in new vehicles. It isn't as if they need to wait for the truck drivers to buy them themselves. And so 
the same way that airlines continue to buy more and more efficient airplanes when possible, and that's a much, much longer and more costly endeavor. Being able to buy one or two self-driving trucks, I mean, it just seems so obvious that as soon as someone comes to them saying, we have a self-driving truck ready for you to try, they will, they will be trying it and piloting it. So I think that's very near term, but that will domino extremely quickly. And, and what, if anything, are we as a society doing to deal with the dislocation of these truck drivers. I haven't seen enough talked about for that in the context of self-driving vehicles, but that's a, a huge group and um, under-discussed because we're so focused on the Lyfts and Ubers and the self-driving and what's going on with the taxi war that we sort of lost sight that there's already a far, far larger population of people who are going to be affected by this negatively in the short yeah, term. Yeah, it was far larger than I ever realized, too. I was, I was shocked to see those, those stats, that that was such a huge profession in our country. Yeah, it is so, so big and, and also so critical to sort of the, the, the infrastructure of, of the country around highways and sort of why being able to get goods across the country is relatively inexpensive and and why we've been able to survive in such a large country is because of trucking and rail and rail is certainly a lot a lot smaller percentage of humans involved in each ton of uh, rail traffic but trucking is certainly a much higher uh, density of people involved in that profession and and they're not going to be as as high you know in the next decade is for sure yeah and that like you said that that seems like something where we need to be thinking ahead on that there's i've seen a lot of discussion relating uh, the idea of a basic income or negative income tax based on on the these sort of the fallout from all of these truck drivers losing their their jobs essentially yeah so one of the things i was just want to curious about as we think about uh, next week but so when you when you think about your experience in san francisco or palo alto or redwood city sort of walking around what is sort of your own personal excitement around having self-driving cars be intermixed with the vehicles? So certainly there'll be people driving a lot of cars and then there'll be some self-driving cars. Is there any use case that you're particularly excited about or is it just in general want self-driving cars? Like, like do you think you will own a self-driving car or do you think you will utilize a self-driving car vehicle? You know? I don't know. I, I use Uber a lot. We're a two-person household with one vehicle, so I tend to get around through public transportation or Uber or walking. Mm -hmm. The most immediate impact for me would be if more people have self-driving vehicles, there will be less need for dedicating area to parking. And the right. amount of whether public, private, or street space that's dedicated to parking in most cities in the u.s is is crazy especially when you look at, at at aerial photos of of cities there's just like an entire block or parts of blocks are used with parking and when you're on foot that's all of a sudden this this canyon of parking that you have to walk across to get to your next destination and having parking everywhere really really makes it a terrible experience when you're walking around at like the human scale yeah I think there's something like 800 million parking spots in the U.S. alone, which comes out to three parking spots for every car. <laughs> and that's including, you know, public, private parking spots, street parking, big parking lots at uh, big box stores. Yeah, and a lot um, of it is free, too, which is another, like, distorting effect where you, you're not actually paying for... You're essentially getting a free rental of maybe, what, like, 
100 square feet of space in a prime urban area. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, think about how much we cherish parks in, in cities and how many more parks there could be if parking garages and lots didn't need to exist. I mean, you think about something like the High Line in, in New York City, converting an old raised rail track into a park. I mean, that thing is, is beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to exist in the city. And it's reusing this old old train line that wasn't working anymore. And and even in San Francisco, thinking about wasn't necessarily parking, but the Embarcadero, there was this uh, highway that went along the coastline inside San Francisco, and they tore it down. And, um, and it turned into this uh, sort of promenade that goes for almost a mile or so from uh, Soma, south of Market area, all the way up to uh, Fisherman's Wharf. And, and that's a, a huge pedestrian walkway and running area and bicycling and dog area. And so that might be one of the most dramatic transitions, too, because it was this brutalist monstrosity of this double decker road, like slicing right through the scenic part of San Francisco. Yeah, I, I agree. I think parking is probably the most immediate. Well, most interesting, probably the least immediate since the transition will True, be yeah. so long, but that. In my own usage of things like Uber and Lyft, when I go somewhere, I love just getting out right in front of the establishment. Like I was I was going to Target and I just took an Uber and got out right in front of Target and walked right in and then came out and the car was right there. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about where you're going to park your car. Is it going to be fine? Do you need to go back and feed a meter? Do you need to avoid having a drink with the friend that you met up with? It's, it's yeah, it, there's so much that opens up when you don't have to worry about this thing that you have to take with you. Yeah, so I guess next week some of the topics since we're sort of getting a little a little long sort of as a tease will be so in the context of a self-driving vehicle, how does the vehicle itself change? Maybe you and your friend both get in the car and you spend most of your time sitting looking at each other like you would on a train instead of one of you driving or what happens when the self-driving car gets in an accident? Are you responsible? Is the car responsible? Is the automaker responsible? What does it do to insurance? So I think next week it'll be really fun to dig into some of the practical aspects where this, this week's been a lot about the um, sort of environmental and societal impact, but getting into the nitty gritty of what that experience on the individual person level will be and what kind of new, new environments we could create with self-driving cars. Excellent. That sounds great. All right. Well, um, as always, you can tweet at us at The Tesla Show with your feedback on Twitter, as well as visit us on our show page on Reddit, r slash The Tesla Show. And uh, a new addition to our posts on Reddit is the recipes of the drinks. <laughs> so if you want to drink along with us as you're listening and um, please do, pl- please do, but certainly don't be driving when you definitely. Do. You can uh, follow us there and all your feedback and thoughts. We've been getting lots and lots of great feedback and hearing people who are listening to us for the first time on a binge session. So that's always fun. So talk to everyone uh, soon. Cheers. All right. Bye.